they say no more, no more they say no more. Hello and welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. So uh, if you listen to my last episode, you'll, you'll know I was debating what to do next and I kind of just decided to throw out those plans. Set aside the Library of America for a while and do something fun, something that will bring, bring me hopefully a great amount of joy, something I've um, been thinking about a while. Um, to do and it's uh it's not gonna be stephen king uh, although I, I think a dark tower reread would be uh, a lot of fun but instead i'm going to do something that uh allow will allow me to to kind of explore some history um explore a, you know just a, a period of history i think is really fascinating and to do it through a work of fiction which i think hasn't got enough attention and respect um, you know, I don't hear too many people talk about this particular work, uh, even though it's a massive work of scholarship and, and creativity and imagination. Um, and I'm here, I'm talking about The Baroque Cycle by, by Neil Stevenson. Um, and this, if you don't know, it's uh, three volumes. Um, so it is a series, but it's a, it's a limited series, if you will. It actually consists of eight, eight novels. Um, that really tell the story of several people's lives, particularly uh, a Puritan turned natural philosopher turned kind of a, a, I guess, kind of a a court figure, a political figure, Daniel Waterhouse. Uh, And then we have uh, Jack Shafto is another major character. He is uh, the king of the vagabonds, kind of a lower class figure. And then we have uh, Eliza of Tagum. That's a made-up kingdom by Neil Stevenson. It, it appears in Cryptonomicon, I think. Um, and she's kind of the third major character. And it covers their lives as they intersect from the 1660s all the way up until till the end of the War of the Spanish Secession, the end of the reign of, of Louis XIV of, of France. So it's kind of a it's kind of an alternative history. It's set in the world of Cryptonomicon. So if you've read Cryptonomicon, and and maybe if I'm really enjoying myself, I'll 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 do Cryptonomicon after this. Uh, this is actually kind of a prequel to Cryptonomicon in that the characters, uh, ancestors appear. Enoch Root, who's a character in Cryptonomicon, appears alive here. He's an alchemist, so he's able to figure out a way to live forever. Um, but you got like Daniel Waterhouse's uh, descendants are characters in. And um, Cryptonomicon, as are Shafto's descendants. Well, actually, it's Shafto's brother's uh, descendants, I guess. So you have uh, a connection to that work. And and so you got some fictionalized elements. Of course, it's historical fiction, but you have a lot of fictional elements, uh, such as Enoch Root and Waterhouse. And you got fictional territories and regions, such as, uh, uh, you know, Tagum. Um, which is where Elias is from. It's kind of a, a Rionic kingdom in uh, the British Isles somewhere. You have, uh, uh, I think, like 
in Japan's called Nippon. There's other changes. <clears throat> so it's not strictly our world, but it, it's kind of a slightly fictionalized. It's like a different level of the tower uh, in, a, in a dark tower sense. Um, but, and it's also kind of science fiction in that you see, but it's set in this late 17th, later 17th, early 18th century, their conception of science. And so the way, they, the way Stevenson, Neil Stevenson plays with alchemy, plays with uh, things like that, give it kind of a science fiction angle. So it, it, it's, it's a lot of fun. And I know there's other works that have sort of explored this period of history. But this one, I, I just have a lot of fun looking at. I read it before, and it's been sitting on my shelf, all three volumes, and, and they're here in Wisconsin. And since I'm here, I say, why not do this? I might be stuck here a while because of my Taiwan visa issues. So uh, let's, let's dig into um, the Baroque cycle. I'm going to do it 100 pages at a time, as uh, you know I normally do that with the Library of America. Uh, style. So I'm going to do it in that style and that will mean it's probably going to be like 26, 27 episodes or so to get through this entire series. So I'm just going to talk about uh, this this book uh, section by section, talk you through it, kind of do a, a, a read through um, approach. So if you have these books you know I urge you to, to pick them up and, and, and check them out. I do think this is an underrated work i think it's actually a pretty brilliant work of scholarship uh and you know other of stevenson's novels have have gotten a little more they're, they're more in popular consciousness like snow crash of course um you know what's the what's the, i forgot the name of the other one diamond age those kind of late cyberpunk kind of works are maybe more popular uh maybe the size of this work has um intimidated some readers i don't know it's not i think it's a bestseller in a sense yeah i always saw it on the bookshelf at bookstores um and at libraries it's just i haven't seen too many people talk about it and uh discuss it with with the respect i think it deserves so anyways let's let's jump in and look at the first part of of the first book so the first volume is called quicksilver and within there are three kind of novels novel length works uh, in each deal with a different character. So the first one is called Quicksilver and deals with uh, Daniel Waterhouse. The second is called The King of the Vagabonds and deals with Jack Shafto. And the third, Odalisque, deals with Eliza. But you also see all the characters interconnecting in various ways. And um, the first volume basically covers 1661 or so until, uh, I want to say, 16, maybe 82. 70 something um 73 so the period is of course a very important period in in british history it's the period of the plague it's also the period of the restoration uh the, of charles ii so it's during his reign of the plague the fire of london and this setting and, and the founding of the royal society our main character in the first book Daniel Waterhouse is a scientist. He becomes a natural philosopher. So he's got a nice character arc in the first uh, volume. And I'll cover it over the first ne next three episodes. We'll look at that first volume. Uh, focusing on the character of Daniel Waterhouse as he starts as a Puritan. Uh, or at least the child of a really strict Puritan. I mean, Drake Waterhouse. These are all fictional characters, by the way. Um, we'll talk about the characters that are real and the ones that are fictional uh, as they pop up. And... Uh, 
basically through his life as he becomes a natural philosopher and then finally becomes sort of a, 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 a public figure in like a kind of institutional presence of of the opposition in in the London in kind of in London um, becoming more of a political figure so it's a, it's a nice character arc for him and I, I think it's really a nice it's it's probably one of the most well put together uh, of the eight books in terms of its uh, of its impact and it's it's we get to see a character develop um, now this first volume is also intercut with 1713 uh, in fact, our first chapter, 1713, so it's like the, the, the fall and winter of 1713. Basically, uh, well, I'll get to what that's about in, in a second. Um, so anyways, our very first chapter in this. Oh, by the way, we have wonderful quotes throughout, little epigraphs spiced throughout the book that um, that uh, drawn from historical texts like the Pilgrim's Progress or Paradise Lost of this rough epoch. And they'll they'll speak to the theme of each each chapter. Um, so, for instance, our overall uh, ep- we have a an epigraph that starts book one, uh, Quicksilver, which is uh, the preface to Newton's Principia Mathematica, and that is of course going to be a major theme of the book is the calculus dispute and uh, and the scientific revolution. And so we start here with this great quote, those who assume hypotheses as first principles of their speculations may indeed form an indigenous romance, but a romance it will still be. Um, so you have this very sci- this idea of the scientific revolution of basing things on first principles, um, but that's also kind of very Greek, right? Uh, this idea that you, you kind of can build purely logically, dedu- like an inductive kind of method to logic. And of course, an argument of the book is going to be the dominance of the empirical, the the inductive method. So the book opens in 1713, and I think the whole series over overall ends in like 1714. Um, so the the entire the entire final volume of the book, the last thousand pages or so of this text, cover basically just uh, 1714, maybe a bit into 1715. Um, so it's set in originally in Boston Common. This is really a fun chapter. I think we start with the witch's execution. So, um, we're kind of reminded of the continued importance of like Puritan ideas in, in Boston, um, and in the new world. Um, and that's going to be a theme of the book is the contrast between the Americas and, and England and the old world. Um, and we're really, this first chapter is from the point of view of Enoch Root. Enoch Root is a character that does show up in Cryptonomicon. He's an alchemist, um, but he's not like doing the lead into gold stuff so much. He's more presented as like an ally, an ongoing ally of the scientific revolution. But he still kind of has figured out certain things, so he's able to live forever. He's of Middle East descent. But he kind of floats through the book kind of as a, as a ghost, uh, interacting in a very important times so he's a part of a kind of mystical element in the story and he's not really crucial to the tale and for hundreds of pages he'll be you won't see him but he shows up from time to time especially in book two he has a has a major role there he has come to boston in order to collect daniel waterhouse because and here's some politics behind this and that is um queen anne 
the final Stuart monarch. And if you know the Stuart monarchs, you have James I of England. Of course, the Stuart monarchs have been kings of Scotland for a while. But you have James I, Charles I, who's executed in the, in the English Civil War. Then the Restoration, Charles II. Uh, James II, who gets kicked out, and that's documented in the first volume of this book as well, or the first volume of this series. Um, James II, then Mary, uh, I think that's James's sister, right? Uh, Mary's the Dutch king, so they have to kind of bring the Dutch in to kind of sustain that Stuart monarchy. And then you have Queen Anne. Is, was she the other sister? Um, or the, I don't think she was the kid. But anyways, Queen Anne had like 17 kids and they all died right so there's no Stuart heir and that then they have to go to the hanoverian line and the origin of the hanoverian line is connected to like henry the eighth um whose sister was married off to the kings of scotland and they eventually a line of them ended up in germany and there's the whole story of the winter queen all that stuff that you may have learned in european history but there was that line um and they were Protestant, so they get they become the Hanoverian kings, uh, who are the Georges, right? So they now here's the problem, here's the rub, is that in England, Newton is seen as the greatest uh, scientist of the scientific revolution, and on the continent, especially among the Germans, it's Leibniz, right? And of course, the calculus dispute was based on which of these two men invented calculus first, and who was the plagiarist. Right. So that is a major theme of the book. It's not the only one, but it runs throughout it. Now, normally, who cares? Right. But since it's the Hanoverians, the Germans who are going to come in and they have us more associated with the Leibniz school, they want to have a concordance between these two perspectives. So Daniel Waterhouse, who knew L Newton as a child or, or as a student, that's all fictional, of course, but he is going to be like a witness in the calculus in the resolution of the calculus dispute. So it's a really great, great setup um, for this old man, Daniel Waterhouse, who's like 80 years old at this point or late 70s, not likely to survive a voyage to England, much less get back. He's got a family. He started his family pretty late, but he's got a family in in Boston. But to save the scientific revolution, that's how Enoch Root sells him on it. He says, you're going to save the... The, the revolution right so that's kind of the setup here and that's what we get in this first uh, um, chapter oh, even though but in this first chapter I guess it's not fully established yet what all's involved it actually comes a little bit later when he's talking to Daniel but we get this wonderful tour of, of 1713 Boston and we get a little tour guide in the form of Ben Franklin a young Ben Franklin who beats up to Enoch Root, and they have a back and forth there. And we talk about they talk about education. They talk about the Puritans in New England. Enoch Root kind of schools uh, young Ben Franklin. It's a lot of fun if you're interested in Ben Franklin or whatever. Um, and you get some kind of historical context that's going to be relevant to this book. And one historical context that they talk a lot about is war, right? So this entire period in which this book is framing was plagued with war. You had the English Civil War, then you had, uh, you know, the wars of Louis XIV. Uh, during his entire reign, he was at war many times um, against England and against the Netherlands, uh, against the Spanish. Well, he got the War of the Spanish Secession, right? That culminates. I guess it wasn't against the Spanish, but it was over Spain, 
right? And that's so war hangs over all of this book. Um, even the Ottoman invasions later on become a part of it. So this entire epic story is played by war, and we're reminded of that early in the book as well. Um, so basically, Ben Franklin helps show him around, and we other things we get here is like little drops of the themes of the book such as Spanish coinage. So currency and coinage is going to be a major part of this text as well. Commerce, the interconnectedness of the world, the world becoming one through commerce, um, the slave trade, money, all these kinds of things are played with here. So it's a lot of, a lot of little hints of what the book is going to really be about are in this first chapter, which is kind of just this tour of, of Boston. Now, there's one little historical nitpick that I guess I have to point out here, and that is it seems now I don't know if this is a mistake on Stevens's point or he was just kind of changing the history a little bit or he's talking about something else. But when Enoch Root comes to New York first, he goes to New York and travels by horse, I guess, to, to Boston, there's like a slave revolt in New York. Now, that slave revolt in New York took place in 1712, not 1713. Uh, and the way it's not like he was in America for a year after coming to New York before getting to Boston. It's, it sounds like it's just a few days. So this, if he wants, the slave revolt happened a year earlier. So unless he's talking about another event that I'm not familiar with, that, that might be a bit of a mistake, but that's okay. Um, so other characters introduced in this first part is uh, Van Hook. Van Hoek, who's the ship captain of the Minerva. The Minerva is the ship that's going to take Daniel Waterhouse to London. It's also uh, a character in the story itself. We don't really meet it uh, fully, its origins, its backstory until the second volume, uh, The Confusion. But that volume gives us the history of Van Hook and his ship, the Minerva, which is all connected to Jack Shafto. So all these characters intersect in various ways. Um, so now the fun thing here is it's revealed that that Daniel Waterhouse, now this is sort of fictionalized, I guess, but Daniel Waterhouse has established somewhere between Boston and Cambridge, the Massachusetts Institute of Technological Arts, right? So it's, it's actually a proto-MIT, and it, the geography of it is exactly where MIT is, right? So you got Harvard, and you follow the Charles River down, MIT's down the river a ways, and then you go farther, and you can get to... To Boston, so it's exactly the same location that MIT is in. But at, at this point, it's just a little Daniel Waterhouse's school that he set up, and he doesn't have any students. It's kind of, kind of pretty embarrassing. But, um, so other things here, just so much in this first chapter. The Cryptonomicon is mentioned. So Daniel um, or John Wilkins is established as a character in the book. He was a real person. Um, now, of course, the Cryptonomicon is a fictionalized book. But I guess Wilkins was interested in ciphering and all that stuff. So that's just Neil Stevenson kind of slightly fictionalizing the character of John Wilkins, who is a figure in the Royal Society. Uh, he'll be a major character in this first volume of it. Um, the Royal Society is also talked about, but we got the proto early days of the Royal Society as the experimental philosophical club. Um, I guess that predates the, the Royal Society. So... Anyways, oh, so much fun stuff here in the in this first chapter. It covers the first about 20 pages of, of the book. Um, a really great introduction to it. 
So then we go back to 1655, and we're still in Enoch's head. We haven't really met Daniel Waterhouse yet. So we still have to follow Enoch Root. He's the one who's having the flashback. And our epigraph here, so the 1713 chapters don't get epigraphs, but most of the stuff from the earlier period do. Uh, most of the chapters from the earlier period get a little epigraph. In this case, it's from Leviathan, and it's for between true science and erroneous doctrines, ignorance is the middle. So it's a, it's a more skeptical view of, of science, right? Which, of course, is really key to the scientific revolution is that skepticism, that desire to have empirical um, uh, truths, right? And the, the idea that erroneous doctrines on the one hand, are, are understood as truth, right? So they, they know something. They have no, they do know something, right? If it's Aristotle, if it's the Bible, whatever. And you're going to have characters who embrace those things in the book. They're erroneous, but they're true, right? In the minds of the holders of those ideas. And then you have true science, which also is presumably coming to truths. Ignorance is when you don't have either of these things in the middle of it. So a very clever choice here. Um, so this section, set in 1655, and this is as far back as we get in the story, um, is Enoch Root in England. And he's basically visiting another alchemist named um, Clark. And there's a, a couple little nice little teases here. One is like early tea uh, is brought in from the Dutch. The Dutch merchants bring in tea from China. Of course, that's going to be crucial in the 19th century. In global trade but also there's this great bit where enoch says like he's like clark is peeing in a chamber pot and enoch says save that you can do a lot of cool things with the urine and of course it's extracting phosphorus which jack shafter will do later in the story um so that's that's a lot of fun but um he's talking about alchemy but they run into this boy and he he kind of dealing with a bully outsmarts them now this boy is isaac newton in the chapter that's Isaac Newton um, but he's presented as a very brilliant early on and a self-learner and he, Clark's basically watching over this kid and Enoch Root says just let him educate himself don't interfere too much don't make him an alchemist if he doesn't want to be just let him pursue what he wants and it's, it's kind of like uh, Enoch Root is pushing along He's all, you know, like pushing along the scientific revolution, right? He could have said Clark to Clark, make this guy a pure alchemist, but he doesn't do that. Instead, he encourages, he's going to encourage Isaac Newton to pursue science and the empirical method to where, you know, to where it will lead him. Um, and some great bits here, like uh, Isaac Newton reading Bates's Mysteries and Natures of Art. Of course, that did influence young Isaac Newton in real life. It was like a popular experiment book that you could do like these experiments at home uh, like we have now, right? You can buy those kits for your kids, like a chemistry kit. But it was a book that you could kind of play with different experiments. And it really influenced Newton as a young age. Um, so uh, now another character who's mentioned in this chapter is another young boy on the continent. Um, and here's what Enoch Root, Root says. There's a boy in Leipzig like this one. The father died recently, leaving him nothing but a vast library. The boy began reading those books only six years old. And he's reading Latin, Greek, and, uh, and German. And, it, and Clark says, what big deal? And he, a lot of people can do that. And Enoch Root says, no, he taught himself to do this. And 
So this is Leibniz, right? So you got Leibniz and Newton both established in this chapter. Um, and we're also defined like the method of the scientific revolution is defined here. Quote, we are empiricists. We scorn the scholastic way of memorizing old books and rejecting what is new, and that is good. But in pinning our hopes on the philosophical mercury, we decided in advance that it is what we seek to discover, and that is never right. End quote. So Enoch Root, who's part of this alchemist tradition, is turning his back on one element of that tradition, saying we should, I guess, embrace more of the empirical method. And that means not pushing Isaac Newton too much. So uh, we got this chapter uh, really introducing us to <clears throat> I, Newton. Then the story flips back to the Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1713. Uh, where, and it's really centered on Enoch and Daniel finally meeting up. Uh, the, we get a little bit of a preface here, uh, an epigraph, I mean, from Daniel Defoe's The Plan of English Commerce, which Stevenson will use a lot in this book because it's a great book. Um, but here it's really about the independence of America and, and the economic potential of the Americas, which is uh, nice for a chapter about, about the Americas. Or said in Boston. Anyways, Daniel, who's kind of a crotchety old man at this point, a weird kind of natural philosopher in this superstitious Boston that's still kind of driven by Puritan ideals. And he's running this little weird school uh, that's on the outskirts of town that doesn't really have any students. And he goes there. And um, what we see him working on now, here's where it's a little bit of a science fiction element in this text we see Daniel Waterhouse working on an early computer. So he's got all these cards. And of course, you know, the early computing was based on the punch cards. So he's kind of playing with these cards and he's trying to create a logic mill. And I guess Leibniz was working on something like that. And that's maybe, that's real, I think. Um, and Daniel Waterhouse is kind of working on that as well. And the question is, how do you categorize all these cards? Like you can create cards that have each subject but how do you like cross-reference or combine them in, in to do that? And he kind of has a method for prime numbers. So, for instance, um, Enoch Root says, some of these strike one as being too complicated for monads, right, to categorize all these cards. For instance, the development of Portuguese hegemony over Central Africa. And Waterhouse says, well, the way I'm doing this is it's, it's a product of five primes. Development, Portuguese, hegemony, Central, and Africa. And we... Each of those is associated with a prime number, and we take the product of those, and that would be a unique number that would reference that combination. Um, it's still kind of complicated, and I don't know how this would work in practice, but Daniel Waterhouse doesn't either. But he's talking about a basically an early computer, and I think that's really a lot of fun. You know Stevenson is interested in technology. He's interested in the, the you know, how knowledge is organized. He's interested in preservation of knowledge. He wrote a whole book about like monks, of course. So it's um, it's a great addition, and that's going to run through in the entire book is this question of categorizing the new knowledge. And you know, you have at this period, of course, the encyclopedia movement, eventually in the 18th century. So there are efforts to try to categorize and unify knowledge into one place. So Daniel Waterhouse then says, okay, let's talk about this. You want me to come to England to deal with this 
calculus dispute. He kind of gives the, you know, explains this, and they end up going to a bar um, in Newtown, and they travel all the way to Newtown, and we get a lot of like backstory here about uh, Waterhouse's um, personal history. Drake, his father, who was a hardcore Puritan, who was. You know, Waterhouse basically says, like, I was educated so I could speak to Jesus on his return in 1666 in Aramaic. That's, yeah, like, he believed the end of the world was coming in 1666. And, of course, that's the year of the plague and the fire of London, too. And we're going to see those, those elements of the stories played out in the text. Um, but Daniel Waterhouse doesn't really want to go to England. He's old. He might not survive. He's got a family. He's got a young wife and young children. Started his family kind of late for reasons we'll see later on in the book. But Enoch Root convinces him to go for two reasons. One is Caroline has an insurance policy out on him that would make his family incredibly wealthy if he died. So there's no loss in that sense, at least for his family. And he could, uh, and, and he's told, more importantly, he said, we need you to save our revolution. And the revolution, he means, is the scientific revolution. Right? Um, so, great stuff here in this chapter, too. Um, listen to this. That just combines so many of the themes of this book. You must imagine a great chamber in Trinity, a gothical stone worn like the underbelly of some ancient cathedral, ancient tables scattered around stained and burnt alchemically beakers and retorts clouded with residue pungent and bright but most of all the books brown wads sacked like cordwood more books than i had ever seen in one room it was a decade or two since wilkins had written his great cryptonomicon in the course of that project he had of course gathered tombs of occult writing from all over the world compiling all that he had known since the time of the ancients about the writing of secrets the publication of that book had brought him fame among those who study such things. Copies were known to have circulated as far as Peking, Lima, Isfahan, Shahanabad. Consequently, more books had yet to be sent from him, from Portuguese crypto-Kabbalists, Arabic savants sulking through ruins and ashes of Alexandria, Parsis who secretly worship the altar of Zoroaster, Armenian merchants who must communicate all over the world in a kind of network of information through subtle signs and symbols hidden in the margins of the ostensible text of letters, so cleverly that a competitor intercepting the message could examine it and find nothing but trivial chatter. And going, This is old Waterhouse's reflections, but what do we have here? We have the internet suggested here, the network of knowledge becoming increasingly global, the globalization of the economy. We have uh, the cryptonomicon mentioned. Uh, it's, all, it's all connected, right? in really fascinating ways. So basically, because of this insurance bribe, uh, Daniel Waterhouse eventually accepts the trip to go. And then we start to get him reflecting on the early days of his relationship with Isaac Newton, which of course will be very key in the resolution of the calculus dispute. Because he's essentially, you know, because Waterhouse, why is he picked here? Well, of course he's a fictional character, but he's... He was a friend of Newton in the young age, at a young age. He was there when Newton kind of figured out the calculus, the fluxions and all that for himself. And of course, that would influence the writing of the Principia Mathematica. And he also becomes associated with Leibniz because a good friend of Leibniz. So he's he knows both. And he's he's kind of 
maybe neutral, but he also has like empirical evidence that can speak to the to the debate. And so we start to get then these flashbacks to his education. And we start with 1661 at the College of the Holy and Undivided Trinity in Cambridge, which is where he is, is studying. Um, and our epigraph for this section is uh, basically a criticism of the Puritans um, by possibly Bernard Manderville. We don't quite know who wrote this thing, but it's the mischiefs that ought justly to be apprehended from a weak government, 1714. And um, basically, it's, it is what it says about the Puritans. The dissenters are destitute of all decorations that can please the outward senses. That which teachers can hope for from humane assistance lies altogether in their own endeavors, and they have nothing to strengthen their doctrines but propriety of manners and exemplary lives. End quote. So saying basically the Puritans, the dissenters in general, only have their propriety how they present themselves. And that's important because this is a um, this is an important chapter in Daniel Waterhouse's life in his upbringing. So basically, he is a young student at Trinity, right away from his family, um, and he sees a fight on the street from outside, like his dorm room, and the fight involves the Duke of Monmouth, who's a real person, right? He's like the bastard kid of Charles II. And he's going to be a character in the book, a uh, pretty significant character, and he's a real one. All right, so we got the Duke of Monmouth, uh, who he's a student with Daniel at this point, and we got whose James name is real name is James Scott. And then we have a bunch of like fictional characters that Stevenson developed for this, like uh, a person who'd become a good friend of uh, Waterhouse, Roger Comstock, um, this guy Jeffries. Jeffries was a real guy, though. He was, uh, so too real, too, 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 I guess, invented. Jeffries was a real person. He was, uh, like, the Solicitor General for James II, and he would be involved in the suppression of the Puritans after the succession of James II, after, the, after Charles II died. That's going to be really relevant to the life of Daniel Waterhouse, as we'll see. So we got Jeffries, and then we have this Earl of Upnor. He's another fictional character here. And basically, he's a he's a pretty high ranking person, but he's also sort of a student and he kills this Puritan in kind of a duel. And Daniel Waterhouse confronts them on this. Uh, at least he confronts Jeffries and Comstock, who was able to approach because they're like they're trying to escape across the river and they take off their clothes and they're swimming naked. And he's able to talk to them. And it's when you think of that Roger Comstock's going to be such a good friend of of Daniel Waterhouse later in the story it's a great moment here Jeffries is more of a bully character now and later in the story and he kind of insults Daniel Waterhouse for uh, well th kind of threatens him to say like why you're not going to talk about this because it's an earl and it's just going to be bad for you right but when he says okay I'm not going to talk about this murder essentially a murder of a essentially an unarmed man he, Jeffries will then continue to like insult uh, Waterhouse over this, saying, "Well, I, like your beliefs don't really matter. You're a, a false Puritan. You're a false religious pe person because you let this person be killed." Um, Comstock, though, he's more friendly, and he—it's clear he wants to be friends with Daniel Waterhouse. He says, "You know, there's really no point to be a witness because he's an earl. It's not going to end up well for you. 
you know. And anyways, he'll be judged after he dies. All right. So if the world's going to end soon, as you probably believe, big deal, right? He's just going to end up dead or in hell. And there's not much you can do about it anyway. So he he's more of a friendly in his. But all f these two characters both basically convinced Daniel Waterhouse to not talk about the murder of this this Puritan. <coughs> Excuse me. But Jeffries will hold this against him for um, for essentially the rest of his life, right? But Waterhouse is able to kind of justify this by saying, well, the world's going to end, right? Which is what Drake, his father, had been teaching him. Quote, what was the point of having the secular authority sit in judgment of him now? If England was still a holy nation, as it had been until recently, then prosecuting Louis Anglesey, Earl of Upnor, would have been a fitting exercise of authority. But the king was back, England was Babylon, Daniel Waterhouse and his hapless Puritans who died, the hapless Puritan who died last night were strangers in a strange land, like the early Christians in pagan Rome. And Daniel would only dirty his hands by getting into some endless legal broil. Best to rise above the fray and keep his eyes on the year 1666. Then this chapter ends with like the funeral of of this Puritan. And we hear Drake. We, it's our first real introduction to Drake Waterhouse. He's only going to be a character for the first, I guess, 150 pages or so. But you know, before he dies. But he's a very, very strict Puritan. Um, and that's established here. But um, now we also are introduced very briefly to Isaac Newton. And the friendship between Daniel Waterhouse and Isaac Newton begins around this time as well. So um, that's a, um, so this chapter also does a lot to establish important characters that are coming up later on. So you want to keep in mind Roger Comstock, Jeffries, Earl of Upnor, and Monmouth. They're all key characters throughout most of this, at least the first volume, but even into the second volume. Now there's one interesting character bit about Isaac Newton that Daniel Waterhouse kind of picks up on. And that is, he's writing down all his sins in like a notebook. I don't know if this is drawn from life. Maybe it is. He would write down all his sins. But then at 1662, he stopped writing his sins. And says, why is this? Well, is it because he forgot to do this? He just got bored of doing it. And then Daniel figures out that it's because Isaac Newton stops believing he's capable of sin. Um, so then we flip back to uh, Boston uh, in 1713. And so this is basically the departure of Daniel from Boston. And our epigraph is from Milton, Paradise Lost, and it's about predestination. In thoughts more elevate and reasoned high of providence, foreknowledge, will, and fate. Um, of course, the predestination debate is key to the present Reformation, the theological disputes of the 16th, 17th century. So that's kind of what this conversation is about. So Daniel Waterhouse is talking to a relative, like a nephew or something, named, uh, what the, what's his name? Um, Wait Still, Wait Still Waterhouse. The Waterhouses have weird names. Daniel, of course, is biblical. Um, you know, Wait Still is uh, his that nephew's name. What else do we have here? Uh, some really good ones. Faith Waterhouse. I guess that's his, his wife. So, um, where is it? Uh, May Mayflower Waterhouse. Praise God. Yeah, that's his, uh, that's his, uh, I guess that's also his, like, nephew. Praise God Waterhouse. 
Um, great names, but they're Puritans, right? And anyways, his friend who's uh, named Wait Still Waterhouse talks to him basically about predestination. And he says, like, you know, why are you going to England? And, you know, do you think you're determined? And or do you have free will? So that's the conversation they have. And we learn that Daniel Waterhouse basically believes like. Like some modern theorists of mine think that we're basically living a deterministic universe and we don't really have free will. Um, he kind of pirouettes and says it's not a very important issue, but basically he, he believes that the mind is a logic mill, right? Um, and the brain is basically just a machine. So it's a very, very modern idea, and it had its roots in the scientific revolution, at least as Stevenson conceives of it. But he says, I'm not a, I'm not a Calvinist. I believe in the scientific revolution, so I'm not a predestinarian in that sense, but I do sort of have this deterministic scientific um, worldview. Now, there's a little bit of here also about like the personal aspects of Waterhouse's life. We don't get enough, I think, about his relationship with Faith and his kids. But he kind of says like, if I stay here, my kid is going to grow up and eventually hate me or rebel against me. If I leave, even if I die, I can be a hero for him for the rest of his life. Um, then we get a little bit of a, a, an epigraph in the middle of a chapter from John Bunyan, The Pilgrim's Progress which is all about a pilgrim leaving on a, on a journey. Um, Pilgrim's Progress, of course, is a, a great book of a spirit, like a spiritual quest kind of book. Um, and he gets on the, the Minerva and, and leaves. Now, there's slaves on the ship. There's piracy. So we're established that there are, there's slavery here in New England. Maybe not on Van Hook's ship itself, but on the boat that takes them to the Minerva there is. And more importantly, there's piracy. So we get a nice little adventure yarn intertwined where they're going to be on the run from pirates. But that won't come up till a little bit later in the first book. So um, now we flip ahead back to 1663, uh, a couple years into Daniel Waterhouse's education at Trinity. And he's basically living as Newton's roommate at this point, keeping him alive. He's caring for Newton, doing his studies when he doesn't have to worry about Newton. So Newton is uh, uh, like not eating, not sleeping until he passes out and not caring for himself. So because he's involved in the studies, he's involved in his research, his empirical research of various types. And so Daniel Waterhouse learns from Newton a lot of things, but he also becomes kind of his nursemaid. Um, but he's doing this experiment, Newton, which I think is a real thing he did, where he would pick these like uh, these kind of needles into his eye to study the the you know how the eye works. Um, and and he did he did this and learned all the stuff about the eyes more than anyone had ever known before. Um, our text is told uh, the text here tells us. So we see Newton and Daniel helping him engaged in empirical research on things that are really going to be some of his earliest discoveries, like on light and optics and lenses and prisms and all that stuff. So after this little brief interlude, this very short chapter, um, I'm kind of skipping over a lot, but there's so much here. It's, there's so much to unpack. I... I feel I'm like abandoned in certain interesting aspects, like the fact that Newton's reading Boyle's experiments and 
colors uh, while he's doing these experiments on his eyes. It's, it's great little details that make this such a richly defined world. Um, and so interconnected. All these characters are inter interconnected through words or ideas or books or they cross currents. They're like, a, you know, like billiard ball, balls bouncing throughout the, the universe, bumping into each other once in a while. Anyways, then we're on we're back on board the Minerva in Massachusetts Bay, and we were I think this was our first good look at Van Hook, the captain, uh, who's just there's not much here in this chapter, but it shows uh, him on the Minerva. Then we flip back to Trinity College in '64, and this is also Newton and Daniel, but instead of experiments on eyes, now it's experiments with. Uh, with uh, time and so he's setting up Newton's setting up a, a you know a sundial to study to study time and anyways this seems kind of not that important to when you think of the achievements that he makes but there's a couple things here one is Newton realizing that light and by extension all of the laws of nature are extensions of God's will Quote, heavenly radiance fills the ether. It's rays parallel and straight, and so long as nothing is here to interrupt them, invisible. The secrets of God's creation are all told by those rays, but told in a language which we do not understand or even hear. The direction from which they shine, the spectrum of colors concealed within the light, are all characters in a cryptogram. The yeomen look at our shadows on the green. We are the yeomen. We interrupt the light, and we are warned and illuminated by it. By stopping the light, we destroy a part of the message without understanding it. We cast a shadow, a hole in the light, a ray of darkness that's shaped like ourselves. And then he says, well, Descartes gave us like the rules that we can begin to interpret this a language. And that language, of course, will be math, mathematics. Um, so this is all about, this chapter is really about the, you know, the scientific revolution, the roots of the scientific revolution. And this idea that instead of the particulars of Aristotle, where everything has its own particular way it can be defined, right? You got the form of the giraffe, the form of the, the frog, or, or not the form, that's the wrong word, it's platonic, but uh, you know, the, you know, the, you categorize things by different types, but they're all have their own nature. Um, but no, there's universal rules that can define everything, right? That's the, the achievement of Newton and the other revolutionaries of the, of, of the scientific field at the time. I think, I think. Um, so we flip back to the Minerva, a lot of flipping back to forth in this early part of the book. Uh, October 17th, 17th, October 1713. Um, and he's basically imagining, there's some really interesting stuff in this chapter where he's sort of imagining the end of the world. And he's, it's a metaphor for it is if the Minerva would crash. And he says, if it did, it would be an opera, a five-act opera, in which you start out people think everything's okay, and eventually they're destroyed after the storm hits. And he says, we are in Act 5. Our universe, our society, our world is in Act 5. And I, I think that's how many people feel now with the ecological crisis and the, this kind of late capitalism, the malaise over that. We kind of feel we're in Act 5 of, of our civilization. But he thought that, you know, he kind of thought that way, too, at the time. 
Um, and there's a little bit here about resistance to the scientific revolution, the, the, the holdouts of the Aristotelian or the religious. So there's like kind of the two res forces resisting it, the ones who f stick to the Aristotelian model and those who, who for religious reasons, uh, oppose it. And then he talks about like, or it's all in Waterhouse's elderly mind here. He talks about the how there was a new language for science was developed uh, at the time he was at Trinity. And at the time he was working on the Royal Society, as we'll see later, a new language of science was developed, that science being mathematics and how it has these occult powers to explain things. And and it's the philosophical mercury, right? This this principle that can expose the truth of everything. Um, and then he thinks, well, at some point I'm going to have to explain the origins of calculus. So I know when Newton kind of developed calculus. And so he writes down it. But he struggles to write it down in the language of 1665 and 4 and not the language of 1713. So it, it's even though there's some pessimism in this chapter, it's also we see the success of the scientific revolution, how people speak in the language of of science and and mathematics and calculus and things like that but anyways it's seeing he's able to show newton basically f had the uh, concept of fluxions uh in 16 1664 um while there were students at trinity um so that's the calculus but it's really funny how he, he's not able to write this down without falling to like Leibzian Leibz, Leibz, uh, like terminology because that was the terminology of calculus when you study calculus you're learning the symbols and methods developed by Leibniz not how Newton did it Newton for Newton calculus was like a throwaway right something to get to like gravity and the, the, the modeling of gravity in Principia Mathematica all right, so we think we're in a book about the scientific revolution, pretty much. But we get this next chapter, which is set in 1665, um, which is Newton and Daniel at a fair. And they spend most of this chapter talking to this uh, Jewish lens grinder. They're buying lenses for Newton's experiments with lenses or whatever. And we get a introduction, uh, an epigraph with John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress which is all about just him coming to the character coming to a fair. So the chapter begins with Newton talking to Daniel about fluxions and about essentially what would become the calculus, um, or at least Newton's conception of the calculus. But they go to buy some lenses from this Jewish merchant. And this Jewish merchant says, like, basically, I'm not going to take your money because it's an English shilling and it's not worth anything. And so this is going to be another theme of the book is money. And it's going to come throughout the whole text. And of course, Newton would eventually run the mint. And a big, big theme of the final volume of this book is going to be the, I guess, the perfection of English currency um, from debasement. Now, they get in this back and forth and and newton's like well it says one shilling on this coin so it must mean a shilling and the merchant says well that doesn't mean anything to me does it have a shilling of a valuable metal in it that's what matters to me it could have been shaved or clipped 
Now, Stevenson here has the cloning clipping as literally people cutting off the coins, which I am sure happened, but my understanding is coin clipping was usually more of a government thing. Government would take in money with taxes, would take in 100 pounds of taxes, and they just remint everything to be like 110 pounds of smaller coins. You know, that was uh, commonly done by governments. Um, but I guess they did real coin, clip, coin clipping too, people did. Um, but they get in this long debate, and this is going to come up again and again in the story as we explore what is money, essentially, and what is its value. And that's going to be key to co global commerce. Even things like, uh, you know, how money is leaving England to, to go to Asia and how when you're dealing internationally, you know, no one in China cares that the, the king's name is on the coin. It says one shilling. Right? They care how much silver or gold is in the coin. So good stuff here. Now, the other thing that happens in this chapter is they come across a sick man who has the plague. So we're told the plague has begun. And of course, the plague of 1665 and 66 in London, sign of the apocalypse for someone like Daniel. So we get a short chapter dealing back on the Minerva, but not much happens here. For matter, I think it's... Um, He's just kind of wandering the ship. Uh, exciting things will happen on the Minerva when they get chased down by, by pirates. But for now, it's just a, kind of a, a tour of the ship. We see the forecastle and other places, and we see the diversity of the ship, which is all explained later in the series when we learn about the origin of the Minerva, how there's uh, Portuguese from Goa, Huguenots, Filipinos, Lascars, all these different diverse people from all over Asia and the Mediterranean and elsewhere on this ship. How they all get there is kind of actually explained later on. Then we have, I guess this is the final chapter I'll talk about. It's called The Plague Year, uh, summer of 1665. Um, and basically Daniel, because schools are shut down during the plague, Daniel's, and he actually, I think there's a Daniel when Newton sort of graduated, but kept studying at Trinity. But he's staying with Drake now. Staying with Drake. And he says to Drake, I've been basically invited to study in Epscom with uh, John Wilkin Wilkins at the Royal Society. And Drake's like, why would you want to do that? The world's going to end. And he says, well, he makes good arguments. There's a really fun back and forth between Drake and, and uh, his son over should you continue your studies even if the world's going to end and what should the study be drake who thinks what do you need behind the bible and and daniel says well god did create universal principles in the universe and shouldn't someone learn learn what they are and drake has to agree it's really fun it's a great back and forth and eventually drake says okay you can go but you need to go to this uh gold smelter with this note the note says pay to the bearer one pound and it's another great little moment about currency because it was of course during this period where paper money starts to take off and that's what early paper money was just a note from a, essentially a bank a, literally a bank note saying pay to the bearer you know this much money and you could then use it to, and drake even explains you can use this to pay off a debt of one pound to someone else but there's also kind of a test here a, a very daniel test in the lion's den where he has to travel across london during the plague to get his one pound which he'll need to pay for his 
trip to the Royal Society. So he does that, and the chapter ends with Daniel going to uh, the Royal Society. But first, like, the Royal Society people wrote him a letter saying, while you're in London, pick up all this stuff for me. And he, who has never really been in with the Royal Society, feels he has to do this to um, basically, you know, be accepted into the Royal Society. So he goes to uh, Wilkins, like, old lab and the old place the Royal Society was meeting, picks up all the stuff and comes back. And then there's a little nice little cute mystery here where there's this letter. Um, he picks up some letters and one is addressed to Grumendol, London. And he also picks this up for the Royal Society. And Daniel figures out that Grumendol is an anagram for the name Oldenburg. Who is a real historical figure and a, a secretary of the Royal Society. So um, Daniel kind of figures out his first mystery <coughs> about the Royal Society on his way there, walking there, going through the streets of London, doing these different errands. So I guess that is the first hundred pages of this almost 3,000 page text. Um, and it's so much fun. It's so rich in kind of historical detail and world building and different ideas. And I don't know. Uh, I love it. I, I really love this book. It's the second time I've kind of read it fully. I've read sections more times than that. But I'm, I'm having a lot of fun talking about it with you. And I hope you do as well. Uh, I hope you read this book um, and read it with me over the next couple weeks. It might be a couple months, actually, for me to to uh, record all my thoughts about this book. Um, but that's it. Um, that's it for now. So uh, there's a great audiobook version, too, which uh, you might be able to find. So, yeah, that's it. So let me know what you think of, of Quicksilver, particularly the first book and the first 100 pages, the first third or so of the first book of this series. Uh, Daniel Waterhouse, his character... Enoch Root, uh, how Newton is characterized. Um, any thoughts about this book? Let me know. I think it's a, it's going to be a lot of fun too to read through this. I'm really excited. So that's going to be it for now. Uh, I'll be back to doing the Library of America when I'm done with this. Uh, Twenty some episodes later, but for now let's let's take it easy and uh, enjoy um the baroque cycle by neil stevenson i'll see you next time as i as i continue to read deeper into quicksilver um and the the story of daniel waterhouse thanks for listening Man, the matchless, matchless man.